Well, then, with a view to the help and guidance of God, let's uh, turn to the passage that we read in Scripture, the book of Leviticus and chapter 16. And uh, we'll read again at verse 21. So that's page 176 in the Church Bible. Leviticus 16 and verse 21, which draws our attention to the second of the two goats. And we read that Aaron shall lay both his hands on the head of the live goat, confess over it all the iniquities of the children of Israel, and all their transgressions concerning all their sins, putting them on the head of the goat, and he shall send it away into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. The goat shall bear on itself all their iniquities to an uninhabited land, and he shall release the goat into the wilderness." We read also in verse 26 later that he who released the goat as the scapegoat shall wash his clothes, bathe his body in water, and afterwards he may come into the camp. Now the chapter we're reading here, the 16th in Leviticus, takes us to a, a very important day in the life of God's people. On this particular day, and it was the same day every year, the <coughs> sins of God's people as a, as a body of people was dealt with in a very corporate way. And there are very distinctive things that take place on this day, and you'll notice that they all center around the high priest who comes to the fore on this particular day, which is usually referred to as the Day of Atonement in Israel, same day every year. Now, on this particular day, the tabernacle is emptied of people, and the high priest takes off his normal clothing. Now, I don't mean by that his day-to-day -day clothing. I mean the special clothing that was made for him, the colorful and very ornate garments that had a special hem on them, he takes them off, and he washes himself, and he puts on a white linen tunic, which is only worn on this day. That's all. It's specially for the services of this particular day. It's the high priest's duty, first of all, to make an offering for himself, now, of course, that's not fulfilled in the experience of Christ. It can't be because he doesn't need to make an offering for himself. But because he is a man here, the high priest must first of all offer for himself to cleanse himself. But then he has a special offering that he's required to give for the people of God. And that is the offering of the two goats, and they are specifically called a sin offering. And after he presents these two goats uh, before the Lord for his acceptance at the tabernacle door, the first goat is taken, 
and it is killed. And the blood of that goat is sprinkled inside the Holy of Holies. That's the um, very central part of the tabernacle where the presence of God is particularly located on the Ark of the Covenant. Nobody goes there except this man and just on one day in the year. And on one occasion, he takes the blood of this goat and he sprinkles it on the mercy seat on top of the ark and seven times in front of the mercy seat. He then moves back outside towards the gate and he sprinkles the bronze altar of sacrifice and smears the blood on the four horns. Now, all that, of course, has interest and deep meaning, uh, but it's not ours to consider today. And remember, as I drew attention to it in the reading, he's on his own in the tabernacle of meeting. On this solemn day, the congregation is outside until he finishes his duty. Now, this particular goat, the, the first goat that's killed and its blood sprinkled, is the one that usually takes most attention. And, and that's because it's the one that's highlighted particularly in the letter to the Hebrews. And when the letter to the Hebrews speaks about the high priest and his ministry and relates it to Christ, he, he relates this particular goat particularly to our Lord Jesus Christ, who was, of course, slain and his own lifeblood taken into the presence of God. But our attention today, with God's help, will be on the other goat, which is called here the scapegoat. Literally in the Hebrew, the goat that is sent away, the sent goat, or the goat that is dismissed, or even the goat that is let go. Now, of course, the word scapegoat from the King James Version has passed into popular usage. We all know what a scapegoat now is. If something goes wrong somewhere, people may find it convenient to put the blame on somebody in particular. And that person may not even have been involved in what went wrong. He may be entirely innocent personally. But it's convenient to put the whole blame on that person. We speak of such a person as being made a scapegoat for what went wrong. The term comes from the King James Version of the Scripture, and it means the goat that is sent away or dismissed with all the blame, with all the responsibility, and with all the guilt on his own head. Now, that's the scapegoat that we wish to look at today, the original scapegoat, the true scapegoat, who is, of course, the Lord Jesus Christ. We read, of course, in the passage that the high priest lays his hands on this scapegoat and confesses the sins of Israel over it. And you'll notice that there's a threefold description of that sin, which means that all its evil, all its complexity, everything is brought before us, transgression, iniquity, and sin. He confesses all that over the head of the scapegoat. And then it is sent or dismissed. It makes its escape by the hand of a fit man, a suitable man, who is specially chosen and entrusted to lead 
this scapegoat into the wilderness and in uninhabited land. You'll notice that the fit man comes back, but the goat himself, itself does not come back. In, in one way, of course, the, the fate of these two goats is very different. One is killed, blood sprinkled. The other is simply dismissed. But the Bible tells us very emphatically that they both form one single offering. One sin offering. The two goats together must be considered together to get a proper picture of how the Lord Jesus Christ deals with our sin. And that, in a way, takes our attention especially to the scapegoat because there must be a special reason for it. You would expect, in other words, that the first goat would teach us all we need to know. There's death there. There's blood there. Blood taken inside, blood sprinkled, atonement made. What more is required? Like every other blood sacrifice, is it not all there? Obviously not. There is something inside that sin offering that can't be represented by one goat. And therefore, it is represented by another. And therefore, the second goat. And the key thing to notice about the second goat all the time is that it remains alive. It's never dead. Every time it's referred to here, it is called the goat that is alive. And that, of course, is distinguishing it from the goat that is dead. This one's alive all the time. Never really dies. Now, it's uh, superfluous, or it's a moot point to ask, does the goat actually die? That's not the point. The point is that it never dies to us in the passage or to the people of Israel. They never see it dead. Whatever it endures, it endures alive. The goat on which the lot fell to be the scapegoat shall first be presented alive before the Lord. Then, verse 20, he shall bring the live goat. He shall lay his hands on the head of the live goat. Notice how the distinction is made all the time. Verse 21, again, the same thing, confessing over it the hands. Um, he shall bring the live goat, confessing over it the iniquity, and sending it away by the hand of a suitable man. So one goat is put to death to teach us something about Christ's sacrifice. The other goat remains alive to teach us something about Christ's sacrifice. And clearly what is being taught there by the scapegoat is the fact that Christ is not just making atonement in his death. He is very much making atonement while he is alive. Or to put that another way, he's not just making atonement dying on the cross. He's making atonement when he is living upon the cross. He is bearing our sins and covering our sins, dealing with our sins, while he hangs there alive upon the cross. 
And by bringing in this scapegoat, God is telling the people of Israel to remember that there is something significant in the experience of the lamb before it is actually put to death. He has to bear the sin while he is alive. And that wouldn't be possible to convey with one lamb. If you think about it, the only way you could convey suffering would be by torturing the lamb somehow before you killed it. Now, the Lord will not do that. He will not allow in his kindness, grace, and mercy for that to happen. He could also have appointed the first lamb uh, to go away for a time into the wilderness and to come back before it is killed, and then it's taken into the holy place. But again, God doesn't do that because he doesn't want the second goat to come back. He wants the second goat to go and to remain away. The first goat is slain. It's put to death. The second goat is led to the wilderness, and it's left there. Why exactly? Well, then, let's look at the scapegoat, or perhaps to paraphrase what the apostle says when he says Christ our Passover was, Paso- was uh, sacrificed for us, we can say that Christ our scapegoat is dismissed for us or sent away for us. Christ our scapegoat. Now, the first thing to notice, and this is very brief, is that this goat, like the other, is presented, first of all, before the Lord at the door of the tabernacle. And like every sacrifice, uh, this one must be presented whole before the Lord, and it must be without spot and without blemish. That was required of every sacrifice. Now, of course, in times of backsliding, people wouldn't give their best animal. Uh, They would give an animal that was defective, an animal that was lame or an animal that was blind, and the Lord rebukes them for that. But uh, really, every animal offered in sacrifice had to be without spot and without blemish. And Christ, of course, presented himself like that before his own sacrifice. I said quite a lot about that when I was dealing with Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane, and I don't want to deal with these things again. It's just sufficient to say that when Christ prayed the high priestly prayer uh, on the night in which he was betrayed, he was uh, presenting himself as the high priest, When he crossed the Kedron, and when he appeared in Gethsemane, he presented himself as the sacrifice, without spot and without blemish. Had there been a defect in his life and ministry, matters could go no further. There would be no imputation. There could be no carrying of the sins to the cross on Calvary. Nothing more could happen. As the high priest, John tells us, he presents himself before God. And there's a twofold presentation uh, for himself as a priest and then himself as the goat or the sacrifice. Now, it's his duty as the scapegoat uh, to deal with our sins. And it's worth noting the, the sins that are placed upon the scapegoat. We're told that they are the sins of all Israel. All Israel. That's emphasized several times in the chapter. 
Now, sometimes a man sacrifices for himself. He has to present an offering because of a sin that he has done. But this is different. This is for the nation. And the nation here is a picture of the whole church collectively. And not even at one point in time, but the church viewed as a whole in all ages and at all times. One offering for that whole body of the true Israel, the people of God, in every place and in every age. In other words, Israel here as a nation represents the church for which Christ dies. So that in itself makes this sacrifice a special one. It's national for the nation, for the whole people of God. And you'll notice, too, that it's not just the sins of the whole church, but all the sins of the whole church. Again and again, the same point is emphasized in the Scripture, that all the iniquities of the children of Israel, all their transgressions and all their sins are placed on top of this goat's head. Some sins are dealt with at different times and in different ways. Sins of infirmity, um, other kinds of sins, uh, different sacrifices. But here they are all, all put on the head of this scapegoat, O Lord Jesus Christ, our iniquities, our transgressions, and our sins. In other words, this becomes the picture in the Old Testament of the once for all perfect atonement of Christ. These two goats accomplish that, that wonderful, typical picture of the one sacrifice of the Lord dealing with all of us as Christians and all our sins. Now, of course, we know that on another level, it doesn't deal with any of them. That's what the writer to the Hebrews says. He said, it's not actually possible for the blood of bulls or goats, he says, to take away sin. And the fact that it doesn't really work is illustrated, he says, by the fact that it's repeated every year. Now, we, we need to understand the significance of that. The writer to the Hebrews is, saying, is effectively saying, if this really worked to take away sins, there'd be no need to repeat it. It would just be done once. But no, he says, it is done every year on the same day to teach us that it's only a picture of what actually achieves the result, which is, of course, the real scapegoat, the Lord Jesus Christ. It is a glorious type. And to go into what the type is really saying to us, we need to get to the real nexus of the connection between the sins and the goat. How do these sins and the goat connect? What is the precise relationship, and in what way does the goat deal with these sins? The scapegoat, that is. Now, the first thing to note, really, is that once this presentation is accepted, once the goat is accepted, the sins are actually confessed. And they are all confessed. Now, that's a reminder to us that Every sin has its own place. Every sin is recorded and kept 
known by the Lord. Every single deviation in all of us who are the Lord's people, in our thoughts and in our words and in our deeds, they all need to be dealt with. Christ is not dealing with an entity called sin. He's not dealing with a a thing like that, some kind of slippery thing that you can't lay hold of, a concept or something like that. He's dealing with actual transgressions, real sins that have multiplied in you and multiplied in me. And every single one of them has to be, as it were, individually put on the head of the live goat. He shall confess all the sins of the children of Israel. Now, I don't mean by that, and the scriptures don't mean by that, that the high priest was somehow entrusted with putting, with confessing, itemizing all these sins. That would be an absurdity. But nonetheless, what it is meant to be telling us is that there is a real um, sin done, whether in thought, word, or deed, which God, as we'll see later, actually places each one of them individually upon the head of Christ. He dies for particular sins that are committed by particular sinners. And one of the things that does is it brings a real sense of consciousness to us of the evil of what we think and say and do. Everything that is amiss had to be dealt with. Every sin you have ever committed as a specific single sin is laid upon the Lord Jesus Christ. That's well worthy of thinking of. Every time we reflect on what we've done, what we do, and even what we will do, every single one of them has its own place on the head of the Lord. So it's not a kind of legal thing alone. It's a real thing, personal thing, your sins and mine laid upon the Savior. How little, I think, we think of that in comparison with how often we should. So all the sins are first confessed, and then the sins are imputed. And that's, of course, conveyed by the very act of the laying on of the hands. Now, to impute is to to consider something as belonging to you. Once something is imputed to you, it's yours. It wasn't yours before, but it's put on your account. It's yours. You deal with it. It's either put on your account for good or bad. And every time hands are laid, there is a transference or a transmission of some kind. Something is being transferred or put upon the person or the thing upon whom or which the hands are laid. That's always the case. For example, in ordination to office. I mean, it's not that long since we had people ordained into office. You're familiar with seeing that. And at that point, of course, hands are laid on the people. The hands of the minister and of the office bearers, or if it's, if it's a minister, the hands of the presbytery are laid upon the person. I've very often heard it said that we could really get rid of the laying on of hands. And the reason, the reason people say that is because, well, they say um, gifts used to be given through the laying on of hands. 
uh, the, the particular charismatic gifts or something like that, um, and, and abilities. Say, for example, the ability to preach or something like that, or the ability to speak in tongues or something like that, would be transferred by the laying on of hands. And these things are not transferred anymore, so we shouldn't really lay on hands. But that's to misunderstand what the laying on of hands means. When you see office bearers and hands laid upon them, it's not the gifts that are being given them, it's the authority to exercise them in the church of God. And that authority is actually being communicated. By the laying on of hands, it is passed on from God through the church to the person. From then on, they are empowered or authorized is better. They are authorized to act in that capacity. There is a real transfer of something. The thing transferred is authority. Now, that authority is supposed to be transferred on the basis that the gifts are there. If they're not, God has not called the person. But the fact of the matter remains that the authority is transmitted by the laying on of hands. Something is always being communicated any time hands are laid on. Now that, of course, is the case with the scapegoat. Now I've, I've given reasons before, and again I'm not coming back to this, but I've given reasons before why we should understand that this laying on of hands in Christ's experience took place in Gethsemane. I'm very, very sure of that, that it was at that point on which hands were laid upon Christ. But I want to bring two things out in connection with the laying on of hands or the imputation, which I, which I didn't bring out when I was looking at, at, at the events of Gethsemane. The first is this, that in the laying on of hands, the hands are always laid on the head. Now, that's very often glossed over as though it means nothing, but it does mean something. After all, strictly speaking, there's no reason why the hands shouldn't be laid somewhere else on the animal. Why not on its shoulder? Why not on its rear part? No, but it is always the head. When the presbytery or the eldership lay their hands, it shouldn't be on the shoulder, it shouldn't be on the back, it should be laid upon the head. Now, why is that? Well, because in the Bible, blessings and curses always fall on the head. They always fall on the head. I remember just a couple of weeks ago, we saw Jacob blessing the sons of Joseph. He stretched out his hands, and he laid his hands on their heads, and he blessed them. And um, Jacob, of course, later on, when he blessed Joseph himself, uh, he said, Joseph is a fruitful bough, a fruitful bough beside a well. The archers have grieved him, shot at him, and hated him, but his bow remained strong. But he says later that the God of your father will help you. The Almighty will bless you with blessings of heaven above, of the deep that lies beneath, he will bless you with blessings of the breasts and of the womb. The blessings of your father, he says, shall be on the head of Joseph, his head, on the crown of the head of him who was separated from his brothers. 
blessings on the head and curses on the head. And why do blessings and curses fall on the head? Because they fall primarily on the mind or on the soul. The blessing of God is experienced in the soul, in the mind, and so is the curse of God. And that needs to be borne out in the imputation. And that's a reminder to us that the sufferings of our Lord Jesus Christ were inflicted primarily on his mind and on his soul. It was not in his body. Speaking with reverence, the sufferings of the body are just that. They're just that. And I'm sure there have been some greater than this and some less. Although it's perilous to to say the extent to which a person feels pain in the body. That may be another matter. It is possible that a, a holy body may feel physical pain greater than an unholy body, but I'm not going to go there. The point is that the real affliction is on the head, and it is in the head that the Lord takes it, and it is in the head that the Lord feels it. It is in his soul the curse falls on the head, just like the blessing falls on the head. You think of the souls in glory. Think of the souls who are lost. It is in their mind that they are blessed and in their minds that they are cursed. A wonderful thought for one, a, a, an awful and terrible thought for the other. But the imputation is on his head. The second thing to notice about the imputation is that it is a felt thing. The actual act of transference and transmission is a felt thing. Now, the reason I want to emphasize that is because it's easy to think of it as a legal thing. Simply a legal thing alone, as though that's all it was. In other words, God is taking the sin that belongs to you and belongs to me, to the whole church through all the ages, and he's taking these sins and he's saying, they are yours now to deal with. True, true, they are. But in the very act of imputation, before he suffers for the imputation, he feels the imputation. He feels the act of imputation itself before any pain or suffering comes upon him. In other words, the imputation is an experimental or experiential thing. Now, the Jews used to stress this in this way, and um, people often just say, well, that was their way of thinking about it. Well, it was their way of thinking about it for a reason. The Jews would always say that the hands of the high priest were not placed on the head, but pressed on the head. Now, there's a good reason for saying that. When it says here that he shall lay his hands on the goat's head, it is an unusual word for lay which carries the idea of pressing. In fact, it's a word used in the Hebrew language for laying siege to a city. Ezekiel uses it like that. He uses this word for um, the siege of a city when, an anim when, a, when the enemy are pressing in upon a city and threatening a city. In fact, in a strange inversion, and languages sometimes function like this, it's difficult to understand, the word can also be used to mean to uphold something as well as to press something down. You may think these are strange opposite meanings. The same happens in uh, other languages too. Uh, 
But you'll notice that the idea of upholding is very much the idea of pressure and weight. Same is true on the other side. He is pressing down on the head of the goat. Now, is there any significance to that? Well, friends, of course there is. Like I said, Christ feels this imputation. And he feels the imputation before he suffers the consequences of that imputation. That explains why in Gethsemane, before his sufferings begin, he feels this intense heaviness coming upon his spirit. It's a weight. It's, a, it's an intense burden that he starts to feel as God's hands are pressing upon him. A burden that we can't even begin to quantify. Why? Because his soul is sorrowful and deeply distressed, he says. And that's what he said to the disciples before he moved further away from them. He said, my soul, he said, is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. And he has to go away and leave them because he is carrying this burden alone. It's been placed on him. It's being put upon him. And it is an awful one to carry. Now, I mentioned that the hands that are laid upon him are God's hands. And that's so we to understand it. You may say, well, it's the high priest here that, that lays hands uh, upon the goat. True. But we need to remember always that the high priest has a, a dual representation. I'll, I'll come back to this later as well. Not only does he represent us to God, he presents God to us. He's always doing that. He is representing us to God and representing God to us. And here he is acting on the part of God himself. He is bringing a burden from God which he is laying on the head of the scapegoat. The Father pressing the burden of all the sins upon him. That is an awful moment. It's always difficult to go into the mind and heart of God the Father, but here you have him pressing iniquity upon his own son. And here you have his own son conscious that his own father is placing a huge burden of sin on his back to the extent that he now becomes a bearer of sin. The sin that was confessed and imputed is now born. He bears it. It's his. It really is his. When God's justice looks all over the world in every age for the sins of all his people, there is only one place he will find it. Them. All of them. In their millions and in their millions. And that is on the scapegoat. That's where they are, and God himself placed them there. There's a text in Isaiah which says that the Lord has laid upon him the iniquity of us all. Again, an unusual text, because another unusual word for laid. Literally, the Lord has caused all the iniquities of us to meet upon him. To meet upon him. It's such an interesting picture. Your iniquities, my iniquities, in thoughts, words, and deeds, summoned, as it were, in every age and from every place, and the Father causes them to meet upon his own Son. A staggering thing.
And the Lord is deeply aware of that imputation, feels it, like I said, and he feels it to the extent that he knows he's carrying this weight. He knows it. That's why he speaks of our sins as being his own. What a way to speak of them. Many a time, you know, we've read the Psalms and we think Christ is speaking, and Christ is clearly speaking. There's no doubt about it. He speaks of giving me vinegar to drink and things like that. And then suddenly he says, my sins and my iniquities, and we say, well, the parallel breaks down. He can't be speaking anymore. Oh, he is speaking. There he is. That sin you did, it was Christ's. Put on him. To the point that he can say, that's my sin. Isn't that a thought? No wonder he can say, my shame and my disgrace. The, the, the reason he can say that he himself is a shame and a disgrace is not simply, and I, I must admit I, I thought of it like this in the past, is not simply the, the, the fact that he is an object of shame and derision in the eyes of the people, but that he has actually been made a, an object of shame and derision in himself in the sense that he actually has become a sin-bearer. And that is difficult for him. This is the Holy One dealing with the Holy One, and he is suddenly encrusted with the sins of his people, an object of shame and an object of derision. Sin is confessed, imputed, and therefore born. They're all on him. When I think today of all my sins, somehow incorporated into that glorious body, it's an awful thought. My carelessness, my neglect, my sloth, and he says, my sloth, my carelessness, my neglect. He took them, took them all, and made them his own. Now, as well as being confessed, imputed, and born, the sins then need to be carried. Now, there's a distinction here between bearing sin and carrying sin. I, I know that maybe in our vocabulary generally, we may think of bearing something and carrying something as being exactly the same. But there is a difference. Take, for example, um, take the right to bear arms. <clears throat> you can have the right to keep arms, you can have the right to bear arms, and the right to carry arms. These are, these are all different rights. The, the, the right to keep arms is the right to have arms in your property. The, the right to bear arms is the right to have arms on your person yourself. The right to carry arms means that you can move around from one place to the other armed. Bearing arms and carrying arms are different things. Well, let me say to you in the same way that bearing sins and carrying them are different things. It's one thing for the Lord to have the sins put on his back. It's another thing to go with them where he must go. And go the Lord must. And here in our text we're told that he takes these sins, the scapegoat, he goes with them into the wilderness. That's what it's called in verse 21. 
The scapegoat shall be sent into the wilderness by the hand of a suitable man. And then in the next verse 22, the goat shall bear the iniquities to an uninhabited land, or carry them to an uninhabited land. The wilderness, a land uninhabited. It's the same place. Slightly different description. A wilderness and a land uninhabited. Now, there's no doubt that the wilderness and the uninhabited land are representing Calvary. There's no doubt about that. In fact, Peter makes an interesting reference in his letter, in the first letter and in chapter 2, and I'll just read this to you. Um, A famous text, really, but he himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. Now, (laughs) see the word bear here. It carries the Greek word pheron in it, which means to carry. And really the point being made here is not that he actually bore our sins, but that he carried our sins. Even if it doesn't come out quite so well in the translation, the Apostle Peter knows exactly what he's saying. He, our sins, he says, carried, he bore or carried our sins in his own body on the tree. And that little Greek word with the accusative case is better to the tree. Now, I'm conscious that I've made a couple of amendments there, and in many respects, nothing changes because he certainly bore our sins on the body. That's the wonderful thing about these things. Usually when there's something that's not there in the Scripture, it's only adding to what is there in a good way. He didn't just bear our sins on the body. Literally, he carried our sins in the body to the tree. He bore them on it, but he carried them to it is what Peter is really saying. And the goat going into the wilderness and into the uninhabited land is telling us that Christ took our sins to Calvary, yes, but Calvary as a wilderness and Calvary as an uninhabited land. Let's take first the wilderness. Now, when the place is spoken of as a wilderness, it's in distinction from being spoken of as uninhabited. Now, we tend to think of a wilderness maybe as uninhabited anyway. But the wilderness aspect of it is not the uninhabited part of it. The wilderness actually has to do, strangely enough, with the presence of something. And it's the presence of evil. You'll remember in Scripture that evil is often associated with the wilderness and with dry places. When the evil spirit goes out of a man, he travels through dry places seeking rest, finds none, and then he brings seven spirits more wicked than himself into that heart. You'll remember that Christ was tempted in the wilderness. The devil took him out there to be tempted in the wilderness. And Mark tells us that he was there with the wild beasts. Now, the old Greek expositors are of the opinion that the wild beasts there are evil spirits. And 
from what I understand, I don't just think that they're saying that they represented the evil spirits, but that they actually are a name for the evil spirits. He was with the wild beasts. And in any case, why tell us that? I mean, Mark tells us nothing more about the wilderness, that he was taken into the wilderness and he was there with the wild beasts. Why, why tell us such a detail? Unless it is the presence of evil and the awful presence of evil. And to be brought out from that place where he identified with his people in baptism, immediately driven into a, into a no-man's land, a wilderness, that sadly is not totally uninhabited, but is inhabited by the presence and the powers of evil, not by a man, not by a comforter, but by the evil spirits. Does our Savior on the cross not draw attention to that? The bulls of Bashan. Yes, these bulls were black. And we can take a liberty of inserting the word in there. The black bulls of Bashan surround me like a rat lion ravening and roaring for his prey. He speaks of the congregation around him as dogs. That's not meant in, a, in, uh, in the way that we would interpret it. The, the Jews refer to the outsiders as the dogs. That's not how they ought to have, but that's what, that's what religion does without grace. That's what religion does without grace. But Christ says that this congregation, he says, have become the dogs themselves. Those who have taken me and crucified me, they have become the dogs. But worse than the dogs are the bulls of Bashan that no one sees there. No one is aware of them but himself, because he is placed in a wilderness there in his head that no one can appreciate but himself. And the powers of evil are at him and on him all the time, in their strength and in their fury, like the wild black bulls of Bashan. That's really minding, reminding us that it's telling us, and it's telling Israel that this goat is in the presence of evil while it's alive. This goat never dies. So this goat goes where evil is while it's alive. Nothing in the experience of the first goat would communicate that. Nothing. There is a death, bloodshed, the sprinkling of blood in the presence of God. No word of this, but the second goat tells us this. Behold the goat while it is living. See the goat while it lives. And see it going into the place of fury and of torment, of hellish temptation and devilish assault. So it goes into a wilderness. But then this wilderness is described as being uninhabited. By man, that is. Or you could say by a friend in need. There's no comfort in a wilderness. Now we're all familiar probably with the fact that comforts were systematically withdrawn from our Lord Jesus Christ. Very deliberately, systematically withdrawn from the Savior. The voice that used to comfort him from above is taken away. The, the last help that we're told he consciously receives is the angel that strengthens him after his experience in the garden. 
one final word of encouragement to continue. But from that moment, he's on his own. And that's how he feels, like an owl in the desert and like a pelican in the wilderness. And can I say to you, friends, that the absence of comforters includes the Holy Spirit himself. Now, he is the comforter. That's his name. It's also one of the names of Christ himself. He is, he is a comforter. But the Holy Spirit we think of as supremely the comforter. But he's not there. He's not there. Now, you may indeed ask the question, do you mean to say that he is not there at all? Would it not be more accurate to say that Christ is mysteriously upheld by the Holy Spirit? Well, yes, that would be right. But there's upholding and there's upholding. There are some upholdings that you feel. There are other upholdings that you don't feel at all. Sometimes people have said, and I, I, I'm not comparing myself. None of us can compare ourselves with the extent of all this. But sometimes people say, did you feel upheld? And sometimes I say, oh, yes. I was sharing with my, my fellow brother in the, in, and father in the ministry here, Mr. MacDonald, yesterday, how, how we have both been um, felt upheld by the prayers of the Lord's people during this communion season. Felt that. But there are other times when I would honestly say, I was upheld, but I didn't feel it. And the only reason I'm no, I know I'm upheld is because I'm still here. And I am still loving the Lord. And I am still hungering and thirsting. But I was not conscious at times of the upholding that was actually there. Now that's a distinction that we need to make in the experience of our Lord. It is one thing to say that there was a ministry of the Holy Spirit that was present, keeping faith. It's another thing to say that the Lord was um, aware of such a thing and comforted by it. Friends, if he was, that absolutely diminishes his pain and suffering. It absolutely diminishes it. But if all the comfort is gone, we begin, at least in a sense, to understand. Although we can't understand the pain that's come in, we can't understand the, 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 the distress of mind and soul, the images of evil and the temptations of the evil, which are effectively saying, you're covered with sin, will you not make them your own? Will you not come down from the cross? Will you not exert your power and release yourself from this? Will you not condemn and crush the people for whom you have foolishly prayed? Will you not assume your dignity and glory and get out of this shame and suffering? Fall down and worship me. People sometimes say that they hear voices in their heads, and undoubtedly they do hear voices in their heads. No one ever heard voices in their heads like this man. No one was ever tempted like this man. No one was ever assaulted as the Lord Jesus Christ was, as he hung alive upon the cross, in the wilderness on the cross, in an uninhabited land, where there is no voice of comfort from God. And these cries of desolation, my Father, um, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? 
and why are you so far from hearing me and do not hide or continue to hide your face from me are the cries of someone who is in a lost and desolate land which takes us to the fit man just very briefly who is the fit man that has the responsibility to take this goat into the wilderness and leave it there now it's possible to say and I I wouldn't dismiss those who hold this view some may say that it doesn't really signify anyone that the, the fit man is just somebody who needs to be there to perform the task he's not meant to represent somebody he's just somebody who is designated with this solemn responsibility to escort the scapegoat into the wilderness. <clears throat> but friends, I don't think that that is the case at all. And I'll tell you why not. In every step of his ministry, from first to last, Christ is led. Sometimes it's described as driven. If you take the temptation in the wilderness even that is true strangely enough when he has to go at the beginning of his ministry into the wilderness to be tempted by the devils it's the Holy Spirit we're told that drove him there and the word is drive there's a compulsion he's propelled there the Holy Spirit as it were just takes him I don't imply that he's unwilling although he is fearful there's nothing wrong with being fearful of evil. It's difficult for him to go 40 days into that experience where he is with the wild beasts and tempted by the devil. But he is driven, led by the Holy Spirit of God. Now, is the Holy Spirit not represented here by the fit man? The only man who knows exactly where to take the good and who knows exactly where to leave the good so that the goat will not return to the people. Now, I suppose you could say um, that the objection to that is this. You'll notice that when it's all finished, the man who took the goat into the wilderness has to come back himself. The goat doesn't come back, but the man comes back, and he has to wash his body with water, and he's got to put on his own clothes. Um, no, he's got to wash his clothes, sorry. And he's got to bathe his body in water. And afterwards, he can take his place in the camp. And you can say, well, we can't follow this through, you see. If it's the Holy Spirit, we can understand him taking Christ into the wilderness and leaving him. But the parallel breaks down here. Yes, but the parallel always breaks down. If, if you take it in connection with the high priest himself... He had to present an offering for himself. He had to offer a sin offering for himself. Christ didn't have to offer a sin offering for himself. But that doesn't change the validity of the figure and the type. And neither does it here. This man has to come back as a man in the congregation. Yes, because he is polluted. Isn't this amazing? He's polluted by the mere contact with the scapegoat. That, that's how sinful this thing has become. I say thing with respect in the sense in which the Holy Spirit said the thing that is born of thee. This object that, that is carrying sin, he's polluted by being in contact with it. And to resume his own place in the camp 
as a man, as a worshiper, like you and like me, he's got to wash his clothes and cleanse himself. But the person he represents doesn't. The, the, the fit man who led this Savior every step of his way is the one who led him on these final steps to come again into the wilderness, again into a place full of evil beasts, and I must leave you there. And for the first time in his experience, our Savior is devoid of conscious communion with his Father and with the Holy Spirit. And that's for your sake. That's for mine. Our sins are confessed over the scapegoat, imputed on the head of the scapegoat, born in the body of the scapegoat, and carried to the wilderness by the scapegoat. And you import all that then into the blood that is carried from the first goat into the Holy of Holies. Now, this goat doesn't return. I know that um, was it, I, men more senior than myself will remember, was it John McSween who said that for the first time in the Lord's experience, in, in the history of the world, the scapegoat came back uh, in, the, uh, in the experience of, of Christ in his day, that the scapegoat returned. In the sense in which that good man meant it, that's true, and it's a wonderful thing. But it has to be noted that this scapegoat does not come back. And that is actually part of the figure. It's part of the figure. It is part of the type and part of the symbolism, and we must give that full respect. A day will come soon when we won't be disturbed by noises like that. I'm sure of that. But the fact of the matter is that that's how God wants us to think of this type. Left there in the wilderness and in an uninhabited place because he wants us to understand the desolation and the solitariness in the experience of the scapegoat. It's important for that figure's sake that we don't see him coming back. He feels lost. He feels lost and he undergoes that for you and for me. And for ourselves, just in conclusion, and just very, very briefly, the first goat, we're told, was for the Lord, because it was taken into God's presence. Is the second goat not for the Lord? Well, yes, of course, in a sense it is. But I think it's good to see the second goat as being specially for our conscience. Our sins, God is telling us, are not just covered from his sight. They are actually lifted away and put into a land of forgottenness where they are not to trouble us anymore. How far has he removed our transgressions from us? As far as the east is distant from the west. And that's as far as you can get. He's taken them away. And they do bother us. There's a sense in which they rightfully will. But in terms of our standing before the Lord, you, the weakest Christian who you are here today, maybe myself, you think, oh, that's not true. You don't know. Neither do I. 
But the weakest Christian here, your sins are as far from you as the strongest Christians are. The Lord Jesus has taken everything you've thought, said, and done. And God has taken them, let me say, and he has placed them on his own son, and his own son removed them where you are not to see them troubling your conscience again. May the Lord bless these few thoughts to us on his word. Now, in coming to the Lord's table, we always remind ourselves, as the word reminds us, that it is an ordinance for those who are the Lord's people. It's not to make people the Lord's people, but for the Lord's people themselves to enjoy. And uh, we are here as the Lord's people by his own invitation. Although it is a holy supper, it wouldn't be right to be so afraid of the Lord's holiness at this supper that we somehow missed its blessedness and put it by ourselves. And it's sometimes a sad thing in the history of the church that uh, people have been so afraid of it, an ordinance meant to strengthen, to nourish, and to comfort and console the Lord's people that they actually put it past themselves. These things ought not to be so. It is his banqueting house, and he welcomes his people in, and his banner over us is very much love. And uh, the love of Christ should communicate itself to us as we see the symbols of his broken body and of his shed blood that he loved sinners like ourselves. Why else, indeed, would he take our sins upon himself? You think of your sins as separating you from him. In a peculiar way, it was your sin that united you to him. Isn't that a strange thing? He took them in order that he could be with you forever. Such is his love for us. Now, the characteristics of the Lord's people are in many places in the Bible. And really, I think this is often said, but it's so true that um, the proclamation of the Word of God from week to week should be teaching all of us who should be at the table and who should not. If it's not, then it's very difficult to do it in five minutes or 20 or an hour. But the Lord gives us the inward characteristics as well as the outward characteristics of the Lord's people in the Sermon on the Mount. Can I just read the inward ones? These people are poor in spirit. That's how they feel in themselves. They've got nothing. But theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn. That doesn't mean people who cry at funerals. It means people who mourn because they are poor in spirit. They mourn because of their sin, really. Simple as that. But they shall be comforted. Blessed are the meek. Maybe there was a day when they were arrogant and thought arrogance was the way to progress in life. But they've learned meekness before the Lord. They've got a teachable spirit and they are willing to be led. They are disciples, not masters. One day they will inherit the earth, even if they're trampled on now. They hunger and thirst not for the things of the world, but for righteousness. 
If you're at the table in the right way today, your supreme desire is to be holy, as God wants you to be. And it is your grief that you're not yet what you will be and what you should be. You're also merciful because you've received God's mercy and therefore you're more than willing to dispense that mercy yourself. You don't hold everlasting grudges against those who do you wrong. And you're clean or pure in heart. You've been washed and cleansed and you've got a single focus for the Lord. You're a peacemaker. You're not a troublemaker. And the passive beatitude at the end. This is not something you are, but something that happens to you. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Sometimes living like the salt of the earth and the light of the world will bring the opposition of the world on you. Well, blessed are you, says the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if you feel anything like myself when I read these things, um, I have a strange feeling. I say, well, that is me, but that is not yet me. I am conscious that these things have been worked into my heart, but not to the extent to which I wish they were there. I would take that as both a good, a sign for good, that you're conscious of a work, conscious too of unworthiness and the work not being finished. But like I mentioned, please, friends, brothers and sisters, this meal is for your nourishment, your encouragement, your strengthening, and your assurance from God personally that uh, he is with you, that he will not leave you nor forsake you until he takes you home. You may sometimes feel you're in a wilderness and in an uninhabited land where there's no comfort, but I assure you, only one person went there, and he went there for your sakes. And be glad in that. When the high priest sent away the scapegoat, they had to wait until, of course, the fit man returned. But once the fit man returned, the high priest had his own duty again to fulfill. He took off the linen clothes that he had worn for the occasion. And he's still on his own in the tabernacle. At this point, he has to go back into the tabernacle on his own, changes his clothing, leaves the linen clothes till next year, and he puts on his ordinary, well, <laughs> they're hardly ordinary clothes, his extraordinary ordinary clothes, which are, of course, um, beautiful in their blue, purple, and scarlet, the ephod and breastplate and so on. But, of course, there is a particular fringe on his garment which has bells and pomegranates on them. Now, we spoke about the, the fringe on uh, Christ's garment a, a while back. But, and I think I might have alluded to the bells and the pomegranates, but they struck me very much in connection with this because the first indication that the people outside have that the sacrifices have been accepted is when the high priest comes back out into their presence. And uh, they hear him before they see him. When the high priest moves, there are golden bells 
all around um, the hem of his garment. Now, some wondered if these were woven on. They weren't woven. They were literal bells because we're told that they made a sound. Weavings don't make a sound. Now, these bells and pomegranates, they, they were alternate. There was a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate, a bell, a pomegranate, all the way around. It would have been a beautiful thing to see and to hear. And if you wonder what they speak of, again, I think it's very useful to remember always that the high priest is us to God and God to us. And I don't think the bells and the pomegranates mean the same when the high priest is going in that direction towards God as they mean when he's coming in this direction towards us. It's roughly or essentially the same, but there is a difference. When the high priest is moving towards God on our behalf, he's taking the fruit of our lips, the sound that we make in his praise, especially in his singing, He's bringing that to God and the fruitfulness of the pomegranate, this many-seeded fruit. He's bringing our fruitfulness before God. But when he comes from God to us, he's bringing the fruit of God's lips to us. He's bringing the gospel message. He's bringing a benediction, a, a message of peace. And the pomegranate there represents what he does for us, the fruitfulness that he works into us which he then receives back. Through the high priest he makes us fruitful, and through the high priest he receives the fruitfulness. So the wonderful thing is really that they hear him before they even see him. And what they can say is that we have been accepted. Our sins have been dealt with. Greatly blessed the people are the joyful sound that know of God coming towards them in the high priest. Greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. In brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. The golden bells and the pomegranates, a reminder to them that the Lord has received them, is blessing them, and will make them fruitful in his service. Let's take that with us to the Lord's table. Our warrant for sitting here in this holy and blessed place is that the apostle said that he received that instruction from the Lord, that on the night in which he was betrayed, he, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, Take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant, in or even sealed by my blood. This do as often as you drink it. Every time, do it in remembrance of me. As often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Yes, we do, friends. We proclaim it as the only sacrifice that will avail and the one that has availed for us. Let's sing in Psalm 89 and at verse 15. This is a people who have been 
deeply impressed with the fact that they are accepted as righteous before the Lord and that the Lord's message towards them is one of acceptance and peace. O oh, greatly blessed the people are, the joyful sound that know. In brightness of thy face, O Lord, they ever on shall go. They in thy name shall all the day rejoice exceedingly, and in thy righteousness shall the exalted be on high, because the glory of their strength doth only stand in thee, and in thy favour shall our horn and power exalted be. These three stanzas we stand to sing them.